Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Failed Utopians, it's Anna, your inscrutable podcast host. This episode is all about former black supremacist cult Nation of Yahweh and its late leader Yahweh Ben Yahweh. This is a story of a dream about black pride and religion that turned into a reality of corruption, fear, and murder. Some episodes of this podcast contain disturbing or upsetting topics. Use your discretion for yourself and those around you. This won't be appropriate for kids. If you feel you need support, please consider asking for help through a crisis line, a mental health professional, or a loved one. I have resources including crisis hotline phone numbers listed in the show notes. Before we get into the nation of Yahweh and the temple of love, let's just set the scene. The 1970s and 1980s were a time of racial strife in Miami, Florida. Like many places around the U.S., racial segregation, conflict, poverty, and violent policing led to some intense tensions in the city, particularly in the majority black communities many of which were neglected and mired in poverty and crime. When I read about this period of time in Miami, it actually kind of reminded me of our situation in America today. Violent incidents with police built up and built up until the community exploded in protest. And yes, sometimes into rioting, looting, and fires. You can see this in old news footage from May of 1980. At the end of 1979, black Miami real estate agent Arthur McDuffie was beaten to death by police. Police tried to cover it up and make it look like an accident after they killed him. McDuffie was 33 years old and had served in the Marines, and the crime that got him beaten to death was allegedly running a red light. People were mad, cops were arrested, but five months after his death, an all-white jury found the officers not guilty. That's when the shit really hit the fan and rioters hit the streets. And basically, the city was burning. That was 40 years ago, but people in Miami still remember. So, in summary, the 80s in Miami was a time of racial strife and conflict. Enter Hewlin Mitchell Jr., a.k.a. Yahweh Ben Yahweh. Yahweh Ben Yahweh was a Pentecostal preacher, so he had that fiery theatrical style that seems to really get people riled up. He blended this with a big dose of black nationalism, and as he gained a following, he founded a new church called the Nation of Yahweh, headquartered in Miami, 
specifically the Liberty City neighborhood. The new headquarters was called the Temple of Love. Yahweh ben Yahweh claimed to be the son of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and his followers considered him a Messiah. He cut a very striking figure, tall and handsome, dressed in white robes and a white turban, which became a uniform that his followers also wore. One aspect of his appearance that was often remarked on was his eyes, which were striking, hard to say just what color they were, but appearing to be a strange combination of blue and light hazel. I'm not sure what it would have been like to see him in person, but in video footage, his eyes are very light against his dark complexion and can almost appear glowing at times. Apparently, somewhere in the Bible is a description of Jesus with eyes as a flame of fire, and his followers found this significant. But Yahweh ben Yahweh was not just about preaching. He was also about revitalizing the black community. After the riots of 1980, the nation of Yahweh started buying up and renovating properties around the neglected ghetto area, which had been further damaged and burned in the riots. They also started businesses and factories that produced products like soap, lotion, and cologne, providing jobs for the neighborhood. They also bought up old defunct grocery stores and opened them again as Yahweh Groceries. They wanted to change the dynamic of this neglected, impoverished area to lift up the black community. This sounds great so far. They were fulfilling a need in the community, and at the same time, using public service as a vehicle to develop a following for their religion. As Yahweh ben Yahweh and his followers gained a reputation for community service and religion, his following grew, and the group garnered some renown outside Miami, attracting new adherents. Some people even sold their homes and moved to Miami to join the temple. Yahweh ben Yahweh's religion was basically an offshoot of the black Hebrew Israelites, preaching that in true history, the figures of the Bible typically represented in Western Christianity as white Europeans were actually black. Just in case you were starting to feel sympathetic since you know Jesus and his entourage and much of the supporting cast were probably at least brown, I'm sorry to inform you that the black Hebrews and the Yahwehs took it too far and claimed that since they were the true descendants of the ancient Israelites, that made white people devils. This is basically the exact opposite of white Christian nationalists who think they are the descendants of the Israelites and that, therefore, black people are devils. <sighs> anyway, the Southern Poverty Law Center says that's racist, and they've categorized the black Hebrew Israelites and Nation of Yahweh as black supremacist organizations. The Anti-Defamation League says some, but not all, black Hebrew Israelites are outspoken anti-Semites and racists, end quote. So not everyone who is part of this group or one of its offshoots is anti-white, anti-Semitic, or racist. 
but we're talking about those with more extreme views, which seem to represent a significant chunk and will come into play later in our story about Yahweh ben Yahweh. Meanwhile, the nation of Yahweh was attracting more and more followers through its positive messages, community activism, and empowerment for the black community. They specifically set out to quash crime, drugs, and prostitution in the neighborhood. Now, at first, people in the community were happy that they were out there cleaning up the streets, but they were doing it through intimidation. They'd go around in groups of 10 or 15 big scary guys in their white robes and holding these tall wooden staffs like Moses. If they caught somebody snatching a purse or harassing a woman on the street, they'd go teach him a lesson. Eventually, their tactics made them seem intimidating and menacing to just about everyone, not just the bad guys. This is a little foreshadowing of what was going on behind the scenes. Yahweh ben Yahweh was very controlling. The more the church grew, the more restrictive things became for members. Often men would be housed in a men's ward at the temple and their wives and children would live separately. Yahweh ben Yahweh taught that sex was only for procreating, but rumor had it that he was going behind the other guy's backs and sleeping with whoever he wanted, including some of their wives. Whew, scandalous. And this is kind of hilarious to me that people believe these guys that want to go around and regulate everybody's sex lives because it almost always turns out they don't practice what they preach. However, this is a very common area where cult leaders exert an inappropriate amount of control over their followers. And I might add mainstream religions as well. There's a list longer than my arm of church leaders taken down by sex scandals. Not to mention Catholic priests, but that's a whole nother story. Beyond the everyday church members, Yahweh ben Yahweh also had an inner circle of loyal followers called elders. They had more responsibility for recruitment, and some of them were sent to other cities to evangelize and start new branches of the temple. He also demanded tithe, so members pretty much gave everything they had to the church. Yeah, if you've been following along, there goes another red flag. As the rules became more restrictive and less appealing, a few disillusioned followers began to peel off. Three of these defectors were 25-year-old Aston Green and married couple Mildred Banks and Carlton Carey. Word on the street was they were starting a new group. Yahweh ben Yahweh couldn't abide this new development and he branded the defectors as hypocrites. He told his flock that because he was the son of God, if you love Yahweh but you don't love his son, you're a hypocrite. So that's why he called his detractors that. Here's a short clip of Yahweh ben Yahweh's voice. Praise Yahweh. But, but you've got to love me. If you don't love me, you are lying, hypocrite. You are a snake if you don't love me. 
Outwardly, Yahweh ben Yahweh was a superstar, and the nation of Yahweh was selling a black utopian dream. The temple acquired a fleet of buses, painted them white, emblazoned their logo on the sides, and sent teams traveling all over America to evangelize and recruit. Meanwhile, their charismatic leader worked the political circuit and ingratiated himself in the temple with local officials and politicians who saw him as a vehicle to gain traction with the black voter bloc. At the height of the organization, it was a $250 million empire with satellite temples and members spread across 45 American cities and reportedly 16 other countries. This story started sounding so familiar to me. Why? It is the exact same setup as Jim Jones and the People's Temple way back in Indianapolis in the 1950s. Jones too started his own church based on anti-racism, stirred in with fiery Pentecostal evangelism, built a following by serving the underserved black community and slums in his city, and legitimized his operation by ingratiating himself to local officials and marketing his church as a voting block to politicians. Jones also shunned white Christianity, coerced and controlled his followers, and got them to believe he was an incarnation of God and meted out harsh punishment to defectors. They both admired and mimicked Father Divine. If you're a new listener joining the Failed Utopia fam, check out episodes three and four. Those episodes plus a bonus episode are all about Jonestown. So you can listen to those to hear about Jim Jones and the similarities between early Jones and Yahweh Ben Yahweh and how they operated will blow your mind. It's uncanny. Oh, and spoiler alert, they both got some of their followers killed, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to Yahweh Ben Yahweh and the explosive events that would eventually spell his downfall. In November of 1981, Yahweh member Khalil Amani was standing guard at the Temple of Love outside the Room of Understanding, which Amani later described as a meeting room by day that transformed into a torture room by night. Temple members Yahweh ben Yahweh wanted to punish, usually for being disobedient or not collecting enough donation money for the temple, would kneel in the room anywhere from a couple of hours to a couple of days. If you moved or tried to rest or fell, you'd get hit with a stick. On this night, as Amani was standing his watch at the temple, Aston Green arrived to meet with Yahweh ben Yahweh. Aston Green was one of those defectors I mentioned earlier who'd been branded a hypocrite. Amani pretty much knew something was up because Yahweh ben Yahweh wasn't there, but his personal bodyguard and head of temple security was there, along with eight or ten other men. Amani was told to go around and stand guard at the side door of the Room of Understanding, which he did. But he started hearing thudding sounds from inside the room. He decided he'd better take a peek, and what he saw was Aston Green on the ground getting one hell of a beating. Aston Green was carried out wrapped in a green carpet secured with duct tape. But he wasn't dead, 
and Amani heard him moaning as the other men put him in the trunk of a car, grabbed a machete, and drove away. The next day, the temple had a big rally celebrating the fact that this hypocrite was gone. I don't know what exactly the rank and file in the church thought had happened to Green or why they were celebrating, but on November 13th, police found his decapitated body in the Everglades. It was a heinous, brutal crime, the sort of thing you might have to assume was motivated by vengeance with the intent to send a message. Unfortunately, there were a lot of murders in Miami in the 1980s, and a lot of bodies of murder victims showed up in the Everglades. For my listeners outside the U.S., the Everglades are a one and a half million acre wetland preserve at the southern tip of Florida, just south of Miami. It's basically a massive, wild swamp. The police didn't know anything about Aston Green or the Yahwehs, but someone else did. Actually, two someones. The other hypocrites. Green had been living with a married couple who'd also defected from the nation of Yahweh, Mildred Banks and Carlton Carey. When Green was found dead, they knew it was the Yahwehs, and they came forward and told police their suspicions. But when they returned home that night after visiting the police, they were ambushed. They were shot and stabbed in a bloodbath. Sadly, Carlton Carey died at the scene. But somehow, Mildred Banks survived her injuries, which included multiple gunshots and stabbing wounds and a machete slice through her neck. She pulled through and told the police everything she knew. Frustratingly, it wasn't enough. She couldn't ID her individual attackers. She could only provide background about the Yahwehs and why they might have wanted to harm her and the other victims. For the police, they didn't have any proof linking these crimes to the Yahwehs or specific group members, but it put the cult on their radar. They wanted to investigate, but they had a really tough time getting into the temple. Eventually, they brought along a fire marshal to use as an excuse to get inside the building. And when they met Yahweh ben Yahweh, they were creeped out, to use a technical term. They thought he seemed off, as though there was an evil lurking within. What exactly they were sensing, we really can't say, but they basically got the heebie-jeebies from the sky. Still, they had no hard evidence of wrongdoing, and potential witnesses that could help them build a case were too afraid to come forward or were still in the thrall of their leader. For now, the nation of Yahweh continued business as usual, and business was booming. The nation of Yahweh continued to grow and expand through the early and mid-80s, and because the police didn't have enough evidence to act, Yahweh ben Yahweh remained a popular figure. But in 1986, things would start heating up again. The Yahwehs did a lot of proselytizing, and in May of 86, they were canvassing Delray Beach, a small city on the Florida coast, north of Miami, handing out pamphlets and evangelizing. 
Their advances were unwelcome, and residents of Delray chased the Yahwehs out of their town. Later, houses in Delray were firebombed. No one thought the timing of this violent attack was a coincidence, and the police who'd had the Yahwehs on their radar became more determined than ever to take the group down. The attack pissed off a lot of people, and one of them was Khalil Amani, that guy I told you about who witnessed Aston Green getting beaten and hauled off at the Temple of Love. Amani had eventually run from the cult, but he hadn't spoken to police out of fear for his life. That fear seems reasonable, given the fates of Green, Carey, and Banks. But the firebombing of Del Rey was the last straw. After he saw news coverage of the firebombing, which included a woman whose infant's crib went up in flames in the attack, he went to the police and spilled everything he knew about Yahweh Ben Yahweh and Aston Green to FBI Special Agent Herb Cousins. In an interview with Oxygen in 2019, Amani described Yahweh Ben Yahweh as a thug masquerading as a religious leader which is a big turnaround from when he was deep in the cult and believed Yahweh ben Yahweh was Jesus in the flesh. Some people might be wondering why Amani didn't go to police sooner, like when he saw Aston Green's beating and abduction, or later when he ran away from the group. And that's a fair question, but I do try to have some empathy for people in these situations who do stay silent out of fear. As far as people speaking out, by the time you realize that your church is looking more like a cult because your leader has private security and enforcers, it's kind of too late because you yourself are now already subject to those same enforcers. And if they've shown a willingness and propensity for violence and murder, you're in a real bind as far as going up against them. And for a lot of people, they fear retaliation, not just against themselves, but their families as well. That's the whole point of the coercive control tactics cult leaders use. They put themselves in the position of being able to maybe harm the person's family if they don't stay quiet, for example. And Yahweh Ben Yahweh was known to separate families, and Amani's wife and kids, who he'd been separated from, were still in the cult when he ran. Plus, as illustrated by the tragedy of the Carey and Banks attack, even if people are willing to quote-unquote do the right thing, just telling the police your suspicions doesn't give them enough evidence to go make an arrest, so you have this whole amount of time where you could be a sitting duck, and sadly, that didn't work out in their case. Basically, it's all the same reasons it's tough to get someone to talk to police about the mafia. So that's something worth thinking about. But ultimately, Amani did go to police. And as it turned out, some police officers had seen two men in a van in Delray before the firebombing, one of whom was identified as Robert Rozier, a so-called death angel from the Temple of Yahweh. Now they had a potential link between the cult and the attack. But even with the evidence they were slowly gathering, they hadn't quite cracked it. And they had dozens of other high-priority cases 
that they were working at the same time as the Yahweh case. Like I said, that was a period of high crime rates. Some of those other murders they wanted to solve included a string of bizarre ritualistic murders in which the victim's ear was severed and missing. Police suspected a serial killer, but they had no good leads and nothing seemed to link the victims together, except they were all white men, sometimes homeless or down and out types. In September of 1986, a man named Raymond Kelly became the latest victim of the ear killer. Kelly frequented a bar called the Teepee Lounge, and after one evening of drinking, decided to sleep it off in his car behind the bar. Good idea, don't drink and drive, kids. Only in this case, Kelly never made it out of that car. He was found dead from multiple stab wounds and his ears were severed. A macabre detail, his glasses were placed back on his face. One ear was completely missing, the other was found on the ground outside the car. Mr. Kelly was also known to have kept a gun in the glove box, and that gun was gone. Again, the police had a missing ear slaying and no suspect. It was one of nine that year. Around that same time, there was another kerfuffle involving the Yahwehs. Remember how great it was that they were buying up and renovating properties in the neglected minority areas of Miami? Well, in October of 86, they took over an Opalaka apartment building. But instead of helping the community out, they started throwing out the building's tenants. And I don't mean evicting them legally with a court order and advance notice, I mean, they just showed up and physically threw people out and tossed their furniture onto the street. These were not legal evictions, and a local legal aid attorney named Barbara Goolsby got involved. By now, there was enough of a fuss that local television was covering the standoff at the apartment building. The lawyer Goolsby called the temple and let Yahweh Ben Yahweh know she was getting a court order to stop the improper evictions and was advising some of the tenants whom she represented that they couldn't be forced to leave without a court order. But she didn't know that the Temple of Yahweh was a violent cult. As far as the general public was concerned, the temple was still just some wacky church. Two of the tenants at the Opalaka apartments were interviewed on local TV, saying they wouldn't leave and that their lawyer had advised them they didn't have to, which was true. Later, the two men who'd spoken out on TV were shot and killed. Witnesses said it was the Yahweh's. Police rushed to the scene of the shooting, and they made it there in time to see a man running away into a nearby wooded area. They apprehended him using a canine unit and it turned out to be none other than Robert Rozier. Yeah, the same man who had been seen in Delray just before the firebombing earlier that year. Rozier cut a pretty imposing figure. He was a six foot three, 250 pound former pro football player. 
For you sports ball fanatics, he had a short-lived career as a defensive end for the St. Louis Cardinals, then the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Saskatchewan Rough Riders in Canada, and then was apparently signed for just two weeks with the Oakland Raiders. He ran into trouble with drugs and writing bad checks. So that was the end of his brief football career. Later, as a hardcore follower of the Nation of Yahweh, he was known to be aggressive and someone who would fight, and supposedly he even got kicked out of the group at some point in time. But here's the really wild thing. Near where Rozier was apprehended, police found two guns, which Rozier had used to murder the men at the apartment complex and then ditched before he was apprehended. One of those guns was the weapon taken from Raymond Kelly's car. Yeah, the guy that got his ears cut off while sleeping it off behind a bar. So now they had a link not only from Rozier to the Delray firebombing and the Opalaka shootings, but strangely, unexpectedly, to the mysterious ear-stealing serial killer. Whoa, talk about a big break. Police were then able to match fingerprints taken from Kelly's car to Rozier. And once in custody, Rozier talked to the police. He told of a brotherhood in Yahweh Ben Yahweh's inner circle called Death Angels, who killed white devils and brought their ears back to their Messiah to prove their loyalty and conviction. In addition to the ear murders that police had been stymied by, the Death Angels also acted as enforcers within the nation of Yahweh. In early 1987, the reputation of Yahweh Ben Yahweh and the temple was under attack due to the explosive criminal allegations. But Yahweh Ben Yahweh hadn't been charged with anything by police. Of course, it's very difficult to get concrete evidence that somebody ordered a killing or told followers to carry out violent attacks. Yahweh Ben Yahweh kept his own hands clean. And he hired the flamboyant star Miami lawyer, Ellis Rubin, to rehab his image and go on offense to do damage control for the nation of Yahweh. Ellis Rubin knew how to work the media and had a lot of success with his PR campaign. He got Yahweh Ben Yahweh to let media into the temple for the first time to show, hey, it's not dark and mysterious. It's just a regular church. And Yahweh Ben Yahweh could talk to the media and give his holy man spiel about how he was totally against violence. And he continued publicizing the nation's good works in the community and schmoozing politicians and business leaders. Incredibly, he was able to continue operating per usual for another four years, while law enforcement struggled to build their case. Meanwhile, Rozier was thrown under the bus and painted as a rogue actor who'd committed crimes completely on his own and not at Yahweh Ben Yahweh's behest. And there was no proof otherwise. Rozier's spotted history and the fact that he was now a suspected serial killer made him a pretty easy target to discredit and to take the fall for everything. In the words of defense attorney Dennis Kanan, Robert Rozier was a good-looking guy, went to college, articulate, well-spoken, and a psychopath. 
Ellis Rubin's PR campaign worked amazingly well. So well, in fact, that just as the FBI was taking their final steps in building a case against Yahweh Ben Yahweh and some of his followers, the mayor of Miami declared an official Yahweh Ben Yahweh day and gave him a key to the city. But in November of 1990, the FBI was finally ready to take down the nation of Yahweh. They'd decided to make use of tactics developed to combat the mafia. So the final result was a RICO case with lots of charges bundled together. RICO stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, and it's the go-to tool for prosecuting organized crime in the U.S. It focuses on racketeering, which is fraudulent business dealing, and for the first time, it allowed the leaders of a crime syndicate to be tried for crimes they ordered others to do rather than escaping prosecution because they did not personally commit the crime. And of course, we all know that's how mafia and other organized crime leaders always seemed to get away with everything, and only low-level employees of the organization were caught and prosecuted. Some of you might remember back in the 80s, before Rudy Giuliani lost his mind, he became a superstar for indicting 11 mafia leaders from New York's five families using the RICO Act. So that's the same law the FBI decided to use to go after Yahweh Ben Yahweh in 1990. At the time, he was out on one of his bus tours on a stop in New Orleans, staying at the Monteleone Hotel. The FBI planned to arrest him at the exact same time they would be carrying out coordinated raids and arrests with SWAT teams back in Florida and a few other locations where wanted followers were located. FBI agent Herb Cousins, the same guy Khalil Amani had told his story to a few years prior, was leading the charge. The FBI was concerned about arresting Yahweh Ben Yahweh at the hotel because there were so many bystanders around. And given the violent incidents they suspected the group of, they didn't want to risk a violent confrontation with the Yahwehs. Agent Cousins called Yahweh Ben Yahweh in his hotel room, told him they were going to execute an arrest warrant for him, and simply asked him to come peacefully to the lobby and turn himself in to avoid any possible incident. Yahweh Ben Yahweh surrendered. (laughs) This is the least exciting part of the story. That's not what I was expecting. But on the other hand, he had a history of keeping himself clean, and he may have thought, they don't have anything on me, so if I just cooperate and go quietly, I'll be able to keep playing the innocent card. And he probably felt somewhat reassured in knowing that he had a good defense lawyer, Ellis Rubin. On the other hand, he may actually have thought, okay, the police are here, they're arresting me, the gig is up. And possibly also feared for his own safety should the police try to arrest him by force causing a confrontation. I don't know what he thought or what his state of mind may have been, but ultimately, he did cooperate and surrendered peacefully to the FBI agent Cousins. So, everything was going as planned, and meanwhile, the coordinated raids had been carried out at the Temple of Love in Florida, as well as arrests in North Carolina and elsewhere. 
Ultimately, Yahweh ben Yahweh and several of his followers were indicted on federal charges related to running a criminal enterprise. After a five-month trial, ben Yahweh was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and not guilty of racketeering. Really? Yes to the murder plot and no to racketeering? It was a strange verdict. And surprisingly, the racketeering charge would have carried a longer sentence than conspiracy to commit murder. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison. But in another dramatic moment, after the sentence was handed down in court, state agents from Florida were waiting to take him into custody on murder charges for one of the nine ear killings back in Florida. The charge was first-degree murder, and it was a death penalty case. In the murder trial in Florida, the state's star witness was none other than Robert Rozier, the killer. He admitted to seven murders and agreed to testify against Yahweh ben Yahweh in exchange for a light sentence of 22 years for his own crimes. Rozier testified in court that he and other death angels had murdered on the orders of Yahweh ben Yahweh. Predictably, the defense team tore Rozier's credibility to shreds. He was an admitted serial killer, for one thing. Also, by agreeing to testify for the state, he got a sweetheart deal and potentially avoided his own death penalty case in court. The jury had a really tough call to make, and on top of that, the pressure of a death-penalized case— it's already really tough to prove that someone forced someone else to commit a crime, and the guy they were supposed to believe was Robert Rozier. The verdict came back, not guilty. Despite the issues with Rozier's credibility, that verdict was actually a big shocker. Remember, he'd already been found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder in federal court. So it really didn't make much sense because if the jury in Florida was correct in finding him not guilty for the murder charges, then of course he couldn't have been guilty of the conspiracy to commit murder charges he was convicted of in federal court. Still, the guilty conviction was upheld in appeals court, even in light of the not guilty outcome in Florida. So it's just a really weird outcome. It's kind of an unfortunate reminder that putting your life in the hands of a jury of peers is probably more of a crapshoot than anything. No offense to my fellow citizens, but I really hope my fate never rests in the hands of a jury. I guess that's why most people, defendants and lawyers, don't want to take a case to trial and usually plead out if they have the option. Okay, so Robert Rozier ended up serving 10 years of his 22-year sentence. Which, remember, that was 22 years for confessing to seven murders and testifying against Yahweh ben Yahweh. However, a short time after he was paroled, he landed himself a 25-year sentence for writing bad checks because of the state of California's three-strike rule. If you're listening from outside the U.S., the three-strike rule is basically a habitual offender law. Several states have them, not just California, and one strike, you go to prison, second strike, you go to prison, third strike, we're going to lock you up and throw away the key, basically. So for the third offense, and I think usually at least one of the three strikes has to be a violent offense, 
The sentencing goes way up to a super severe mandatory sentence in a nutshell. So we end up with a serial killer who admitted to multiple murders serving out 10 years while the exact same guy gets caught writing some bad checks amounting to a couple thousand dollars and gets 25 to life. So he's pretty much locked away forever, but it was in a roundabout way. Yahweh Ben Yahweh served 11 of his 18 years. He was paroled in 2001 and went back to Miami, but a condition of his parole was isolation from the nation of Yahweh, so he wasn't allowed to go back to the group or start it back up or whatever. And he did still have a lot of supporters and followers, even though the group officially had fallen apart after his arrest. All their properties were sold off or seized, their buses were stripped of parts, and the Temple of Love was trashed and fell into ruin. I assume he was able to be with his kids, even though they were Yahweh members, and actually he had a wife named Linda Gaines, who was also convicted and sentenced to 16 years in that RICO case. But there is so little information out there on her. Most sources don't even so much as mention her. Even his obituary didn't mention her. But allegedly, she was kind of his right hand and had a lot to do with the running of the group's many businesses, but denied any criminal involvement. So I don't know how much time she served or what became of her. In any case, Yahweh Ben Yahweh became ill after leaving prison and passed away from cancer in 2007. The Nation of Yahweh is still active. They have a website, which I will link to in the show notes, and it basically looks a lot like zillions of other wackadoo Christian websites on the internet. It's also strangely uninformative. Like, if you're a complete newbie coming at this, like, what the hell is Nation of Yahweh? This website will not answer that for you, because it's just a fire hose of weirdness. Some of it seems to kind of dovetail with today's conspiracy trends. Here's something hilarious that I randomly found on a page called Operation Word War, which is ostensibly about fake news. The documents linked on this page should be read in a quiet, comfortable environment to fully appreciate the terror of this government and how it can and will affect you. So basically, get comfy because you're about to shit your pants. And that link opens this unintelligible manifesto disguised as an academic paper with citations and everything, basically about how their group has been maliciously targeted and attacked by the government because they know the truth and yada yada. It's pretty out there, and it's obvious they're a very anti-government group currently. But from what I can glean from other sources, they're basically just an eccentric church now, and it seems like a mostly online and phone conference-based church. They still believe that Yahweh Ben Yahweh was a messiah and follow his teachings and wear the white robes and all that. If somebody out there knows something I don't, set me straight. But it appears to me they're just another bizarre, super specialized church, of which there are thousands and thousands around the world. 
And they seem weird to me, but I'm not their target demographic, and they're entitled to their beliefs. I don't know of any evidence that they still operate like a cult. They have apparently abandoned their former racist beliefs, and they no longer have a physical headquarters like the Temple of Love. I also heard they have a late-night infomercial that airs on TV. I don't know where, but I'd actually be kind of curious to see that. Uh, send me an email if you have seen it. I went to see if it was on YouTube, and instead I found some other videos and, I guess, commercials by them. And spoiler alert, they are really weird. <laughs> but honestly, maybe not any weirder than a lot of other church solicitations that I've seen. Pretty wild, though. Something I'm confused about is that supposedly there is a new leader called, you guessed it, Yahweh Ben Yahweh Ben Yahweh. <laughs> and I don't know what the deal is. He's not on their website, which is all about the OG Ben Yahweh. But I saw footage of this new guy in a documentary. So I don't know how he fits in or what. But the upshot is they're continuing on with their church one way or another. Fun fact. You know that crazy Blacks for Trump guy? That was a former Yahweh. He goes by Michael the Black Man now, but back in that big 1990s RICO case, he was charged with murder and attempted murder, but found not guilty. One of Yahweh Ben Yahweh's daughters, Vanita Mitchell, is a vocal defender of her late father, and she's very impassioned about it. She wrote a book about it. And she and other Yahweh acolytes are of the opinion that Robert Rozier acted alone and lied to get a reduced sentence, and that not only did police falsely accuse her father, but that they did it knowingly and intentionally in a malicious effort to quash his religious message. A lot of people look at that and go, that's nuts, these people are out to lunch, they were brainwashed, and... I don't know. I may not agree with them, but if we try to look at it from their perspective, um, would this be the first time police railroaded a black guy in an investigation? Would it be the first time police targeted a black religious leader? No, and no. So if we put ourselves in the shoes of Vanita Mitchell and Yahweh followers who believe in his innocence, to me, it's not that big of a leap to say Robert Rozier was the bad guy and he went rogue. And more than that, if you really loved Yahweh Ben Yahweh and truly believed he was a Messiah and actual personification of the Son of God, or in Ms. Mitchell's case, he's your dad, I can kind of see why they'd prefer to stick with that narrative. I don't agree, but I'm also not going to say they're crazy for thinking that. And to be fair, a jury did find him not guilty of murder. That said, the general consensus is that Yahweh Ben Yahweh was not a messiah, but a destructive cult leader who controlled his followers, ran a criminal racketeering scheme for years, and ordered multiple murders. That's where I'm going to leave it. I'll be back with you all in two weeks.
you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.